Welcome to Policy Chats, the official podcast of the School of Public Policy at the University of California, Riverside. I'm your host, Kevin Karami. Join me and my classmates as we learn about potential policy solutions for today's biggest societal challenges. Joining us today is Professor of Economics at the University of California, Riverside, Dr. Job Corey. My fellow classmate Zeno and I chatted with him about global supply chains and the evolving economy. Dr. Corey is a professor of economics at the University of California, Riverside. His research focuses on developmental, public, and applied microeconomics. Dr. Corey, it is an honor to have you join us today. Ah, the honor is mine. Thank you so much for having me. Great. So this is a really, really important topic, and it's a topic we've never covered on the podcast. So I want to start with a general kind of open-ended question. For our audience, can you first explain and kind of dissect what global supply chains are, how they function, and finally, the significance of them? Yeah, sure. So global supply chains is basically how products get from their original raw materials to your store to be sold in a retail format. And it's kind of divided up into four sections. So the first section is what we call procurement, and that's how you get the resources to the actual manufacturing establishment. And then the uh, next uh, section of the supply chain is the actual manufacturing part. And that's where you actually turn the raw materials into the finished product. And then you have a, uh, another section that's kind of the operations or planning. So basically uh, the logistics behind how much material you wanna kind of get into your establishment and then uh, the kind of ways that you want to uh, uh, plan to distribute it. And then the final uh, part of it is the warehousing or distribution method. So how you store the product and then how you get it to the retail stores. And the global pandemic has kind of had an interesting effect on the different sections of the supply chain, right? So in terms of the procurement, uh, it can be kind of difficult to now to get some of these resources into the, um, into the warehouses. And one of those reasons why is because normally these things are shipped in these huge shipping containers. And these shipping containers make these kind of uh, uh, two-way uh, trade routes. So, so, for example, one might go from, say, like uh, China to Los Angeles with a uh, shipping container full of goods. And then it's going to come back with, uh, again, goods on, uh, new goods placed on that shipping container going from L.A. to China. Right? Well, if a shipping container goes from, say, China to L.A. with a bunch of goods, and due to a factory being shut down as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, then that shipping container is not gonna have new goods loaded on it, and therefore there's no reason to send it back to China. And so it might just stay there, right? And so because these shipping containers have kind of been stuck in certain areas without any goods returning because of these shutdowns, then um, they're much harder to come by. So I uh, read a statistic where a shipping container uh, being shipped from say China to LA, Right, so from like Shanghai to LA uh, would cost uh, two thousand dollars normally, but now costing like twenty five thousand dollars under this pandemic. So again, just due to the lack of uh, ability to get some of these containers. So in the procurement stage, you're kind of having that hold up there of these goods not coming back. And then in the um, manufacturing stage of production, uh, you're also having the issue of again just workers not being available either due to uh, mandated shutdowns, or again, what we kind of know now is being called the great resignation, right? You're having a lot less uh, items being able to be produced just because of a lack of manpower, but also just because of a lack of access to some of the resources. 
if a can of paint requires like 24 different chemicals, well, you might be able to get 23 of them, but if you can't get that last one or that 24th one, that might alone just halt the entire production process. And you're kind of seeing that uh, with uh, cars too. Uh, you know, because production's so interrelated nowadays, a car made in Japan might require a microchip that's made in Taiwan. But if you can't get access to that microchip, then you can't produce that car. And that's why if you're looking to buy a new car right now, you might end up having to pay ten or $15,000 over the sticker price or MSRP. So again, in the manufacturing stage, uh, just due to the fact that you're not being able to get these resources anymore, that's kind of leading to this uh, slowdown or shutdown as well. And then in the kind of uh, planning or warehousing stage, uh, one kind of interesting thing to note is that um, companies, they, don't, they weren't really set up for shortages, so they didn't have like a contingency plan in place. So a lot of times companies try to operate in a pretty lean fashion. Uh, every dollar that's spent kind of warehousing uh, extra supplies in case of a shortage or shutdown, that is a, uh, a dollar that is uh, that can't be spent on, say, new innovations, making products faster, better, cheaper, or maybe paying out uh, employee wages or bonuses or anything like that. And so, again, companies try to operate as lean as possible, and that works well when things are working well. But when you have this kind of pandemic uh, hitting these uh, supply chains and the other ways we've talked about, now they don't have anything to accommodate the kinds of shortages that uh, we're seeing. And now that companies are now trying to order extra supplies because these shortages are starting to arise, uh, everybody's trying to order extra supplies at once. You essentially are creating this uh, huge traffic jam, right? Where again, all these uh, shipping containers are trying to either leave or come in at once when they're available. Uh, in some cases, as we talked about, they might not even be available. And so again, you're just having hardy, you're having a hard time now getting the extra supplies that we wish we had we are operating in that kind of lean fashion. And then that final stage that we talked about in the, um, again, the warehousing or distribution stage is again, just kind of uh, been hit by uh, just lack of workers, right? Again, workers are uh, um, um, taking the jobs that are available as frequently as they used to, right? Again, we had kind of this huge drop off in employment uh, during this pandemic. And again, we have uh, kind of, for a while, there are a record number of jobs available that people just don't. So that's kind of the, uh, I guess the short answer, or maybe not so short answer of kind of talking about these supply chain issues. So thank you for the explanation of the supply chain and providing that uh, background information for it. So moving on to the next question of, has uh, an event like this, where there have been issues in the supply chain uh, creating issues in, in availability of products for consumers um, happened before, um, or is this kind of effect from COVID uh, uh, something that's new to uh, uh, the supply chain? Oh, this this happens a lot. So it, it's actually happened quite a bit before. So, you know, pandemics by themselves aren't new or uh, novel. So, you know, in 1918, we had uh, the Spanish flu pandemic uh, that lasted for a couple of years. Uh, probably, I, I teach world economic history as one of my classes here at UCR. So, you know, we spent a good a bit of time talking about the, um, uh, the bubonic plague or Black Death that kind of raged through Europe. And again, these are all pandemics at different levels. Um, so, you know, to kind of give you an idea of the comparison between them, you know, uh, so the coronavirus, we've had what, about 869,000 deaths uh, as a result of COVID-19 here in the United States, which comes out to about a quarter of 1% of the population. And I'm not trying to trivialize that at all, but if you compare that to the bubonic plague, 
where you had 25 million deaths, which was about a third of Europe's population or Western Europe's population at that time, right? So uh, again, you can kind of see the difference in significance in terms of, uh, uh, you know, just the, the death rate that was happening. And uh, both during the bubonic plague and during that uh, Spanish flu pandemic, right, you've had the same kind of supply chain issues uh, for the same reasons, right? Is it's hard to get people to interact and trade with one another when talking to somebody might result in you catching um, now, what's interesting about all three of these uh, pandemics is that they were followed by times of economic growth, particularly for people at uh, kind of uh, the lower end of the economic spectrum. So after the bubonic plague, because you had about one in three people die, you had a huge um, uh, lack of labor that was uh, strongly desired at this time. So you had this increased demand of workers to come work for you, but there just weren't people available to provide their labor. It's actually resulted in the highest real wages for uh, agricultural laborers uh, at that time period, both uh, all the way up to about the 1800s, right? So again, the kind of poor farmers were now making higher real wages immediately following that bubonic plague uh, than they were before that period, and then all the way up until around the 1800s, right? And that was actually called the golden age of the English agricultural laborer because it was in um, you know, so, so much of improvement in their living standards. And that's where, uh, uh, again, people started to kind of move away from the manorial or feudal system, started to kind of live in uh, areas where they could develop their own businesses and start to trade more. So it actually led to some economic prosperity that followed. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, Spanish uh, flu pandemic from 1918 uh, through 1920 was followed by the Roaring Twenties, kind of a time of huge economic and social change, right? And um, this... Uh, COVID-19 pandemic has actually led to an increase in real wages among the lowest uh, quartile of earners, right? Um, um, since uh, yeah, their real wages have gone up since before the pandemic started, right? Now that's kind of been tempered recently because inflation is so high. So remember uh, uh, that real wages is your wage adjusted for inflation. So again, these uh, people who are kind of lower end of the economic spectrum are in that lowest quartile. So, uh, big increase in their real wages and it's still higher than it was before the pandemic. It's actually kind of been tempered or uh, leveled off a little bit by this increase in inflation. So, uh, but it's still higher than it was before, right? So again, not only is this not unusual, but the results that we're seeing are not unusual either. Thank you. Uh, and then just to follow up on that, uh, with these previous occurrences, um, of supply chain issues or, or other related issues due to the, the decrease in population. Um, what have been kind of some of the, the past either options or potential plans or strategies that have been used to try to counteract some of these uh, supply chain issues or, or certain past government actions even um, that have been taken to try to kind of counteract some of the, the distress created by issues in the supply chain? Well, I think more so than government action, these supply chain issues get corrected just by your natural changes in supply and demand or markets really starting to uh, equilibrate. So as uh, you see prices increase for, say, automobiles, as people are willing to pay ten dollars or $15,000 over the sticker MSRP price, you're going to see companies go to greater lengths in order to acquire the resources needed to produce these cars. Right? That sends a, and that's textbook economics 101, when the price of a uh, good that you're selling increases, you're going to go uh, through uh, more effort in order to produce those goods. That's kind of how the law of supply works. When the price goes up, the client supply goes up with it. 
And as that happens, right, um, again, that's going to start to um, uh, flood the market with the goods that people are wanting, and that's going to cause that price to eventually start to go back down as those uh, goods start to enter that market. So I think just the natural changes in supply and demand will eventually kind of create uh, the, um, or get us back to where uh, we kind of reached that equilibrium that we were before the pandemic hit. Um, now, the government can kind of augment this, both for better or worse. Um, so in some cases, um, you know, the stimulus packages that the government's have, uh, the government has kind of been offering has kind of kept people out there uh, buying goods and services and um, keeping uh, uh, people above the poverty line. Uh, I think the, uh, I, I read uh, somewhere that the poverty line, that the uh, percentage of people below the poverty level went from actually uh, close to 12% down to uh, just over 9% during the pandemic. So we actually have fewer people in poverty and that's mostly the result of some of these uh, stimulus programs. Right. But at the same time, um, some of these uh, uh, government actions might get in the way a little bit, right? Uh, in the way that um, unemployment benefits aren't shown to have a huge uh, increase in causing people to stay unemployed or choose to become unemployed. But there is some people on the margin who, as long as they're getting a little bit more money in unemployment benefits, might wait a little bit longer to go back to work or take a little bit longer to decide what kind of job they want. And again, uh, right now with the uh, huge demand for labor that we have and, not pe and people not filling the 10 million or so jobs available, right, that might be a reason why, again, we might be a little bit slower to get back to producing the types of goods and services that we used to before, right, at least producing them in the same quantities that are being demanded. So again, the government kind of works both ways. Sometimes it helps, sometimes it hurts. Um, and again, uh, I think the unemployment benefits one is kind of interesting. So there's a lot of studies out there that show that, again, they have little to no effect in terms of like people not choosing to work. Generally, people don't want to sit around and collect unemployment benefits, right? But there are a few people who say, hey, as long as I'm getting this check, right, maybe I will spend some more time creating YouTube content and maybe try to make some money that way, right? Versus maybe go back to a work where the culture I viewed was toxic or the pay was too low or something along those lines. Um, and I think that might not, that's not necessarily a bad thing because I think it gives people kind of a um, uh, ability to engage in kind of more entrepreneurship that might actually not only be more self-satisfactory to them, but maybe more beneficial to the economy in the long run. Uh, I read somewhere that the number of uh, business startups during the pandemic uh, or during the two years of the pandemic were, is actually much higher than it was two years before the pandemic. So again, I think a lot of people are now kind of using this opportunity uh, to not stay at a job that they decided they don't like, but actually use that uh, opportunity to maybe create a new job for themselves that'd be more uh, maybe uh, uh, fulfilling would be probably the better way to say that. Social injustice, health disparities, climate change. Are you interested in solving pressing challenges like these currently facing our region and the world? They consider joining the next cohort of future policy leaders like me by applying for the UCR Master of Public Policy program. Learn more at mpp.ucr.edu. You can also find the link in our show notes. I think that's a really, really interesting idea that there are a lot more people because of partly because of the pandemic, but also partly because of the expansion of social media that um, people are choosing to just kind of be more entrepreneurial entrepreneurial, um, and kind of work for themselves. They're their own boss. Um, but from the perspective of, yeah, go ahead. 
was gonna say, yeah, you have this huge rise in kind of what's known as the gig economy now, where people, you know, they can drive part time through Uber, they can rent out rooms part time through Airbnb, they can again make social media content, they're working as uh, uh, fitness or life coaches online, and people are willing to pay for that. I mean, I know that my uh, uh, my three boys, they watch YouTube all the time and they watch people who have millions of subscribers and views and who make a lot more money than I do just by producing this social media content, right? So it's something that I think a lot of people are kind of gravitating towards kind of earning money on their own time according to their own schedule. I think the pandemic has maybe increased a preference for that, right? So again, as people got used to not being uh, going to work from nine to five every day, but kind of being able to work from home, I think it, it might have, again, increased the preference for that kind of lifestyle. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing this great resignation. Uh, read a study that it's not actually about worker pay as much. That's what a lot of people like to cite. But in the study, like pay was like number 16 on the list. That's why people were kind of choosing to leave their job. A lot of it was just uh, enjoying the freedom, uh, being able to work from home or working by themselves, uh, not having to endure maybe the toxic culture that they felt existed at their workplace where they felt maybe undervalued or underrepresented, right? Again, they just prefer to be their own boss. Yeah, it, it's a really, really unique situation. But, you know, one thing I wanted to focus on was um, from not the perspective of the individual, but from the perspective of these massive companies and corporations um, and specifically how they'll respond. I think, you know, one thing that, you know, has been developed a lot this past decade is automation. You know, you'll go to fast food restaurants and you can just kind of order on one of those kiosks or you can, um, you know, self-driving cars are, you know, becoming more and more common. What role do you think automation is going to play? Do you think that's kind of, um, in a way, the answer that these companies are going to take, you know, these kind of lower paying jobs? Is that the direction they're going? Or, um, you know, I've read studies that have um, talked about how there's almost this um, strange shock from, you know, uh, these massive companies and corporations, you know, they're, um, it's kind of funny in a way because they seem kind of confused as to why people are leaving. Um, you know, as we were discussing, it makes a lot of sense. So, what's their response going to be? You know, do you think it's automation? Maybe it's something else? Uh, it wouldn't surprise me that increased automation might come around as a result of this. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I can't really, I couldn't predict the future or uh, I'm not, you know, I don't run these companies. I can't say exactly what they would do, but I could, I know that when uh, minimum wage goes up. So when the federal government increases minimum wage to the point where the new minimum wage might be higher than the productivity of a cashier, uh, companies, one of their responses is put in more self-checkout lines, right? So uh, in the same way that, um, you know, inc increases in minimum wage might increase automation, uh, the uh, lack of desire of workers to take these jobs where they feel undervalued, right, means that, again, these companies, they can't hire these individuals, they might try to come up with an automated way of replacing them, right? Or uh, alternatively, it's very possible and perhaps likely that companies realizing that maybe a toxic culture as uh, the result of their uh, employees not necessarily wanting to take these jobs, maybe they're going to change their culture. Uh, again, you've had a lot of positive changes come around as a result of uh, uh, pandemics before. So, may, you know, that could certainly be a positive change that comes around as a result of this one. Uh, as I talked about after the bubonic plague, uh, that's where workers, because they were so highly valued, really kind of got to make more calls about where they wanted to work. So they didn't have to work for that same on that same uh, manorial plot of land for that same feudal king that they worked before. There's such an increase in demand for workers that workers kind of got to vote with their feet and go uh, work for the uh, work on the plots of land where they got the better tools and got to keep more of what they produce. So again, they workers got more choices 
and they tend to choose the places that gave them the best opportunities. I think that's what you're gonna have here is you have a huge increase in the this demand for workers is gonna cause employers to uh, maybe have to offer more in order to get employees to work for them. And so you could see a change in or a shift in culture with um, you know greater pay, more benefits, more flexibility, right? Or you could see it go the other way, whereas the company's like, well, if these workers don't wanna work, then we're gonna have to uh, find out a way to do without them and then maybe increase that uh, 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 automation process that you were talking about. Definitely, and as a follow-up, you know, I think um, you may recall from the uh, 2020 um, uh, presidential election, specifically the Democratic primaries, um, Andrew Yang, you know, he talked a lot about um, automation and, you know, the dangers of it. And one thing that I always found interesting was his focus on um, truck drivers specifically. Um, you know, we have around 4 million truck drivers in the U.S. Obviously, they're massive. Um, uh, they're really important in terms of production and movement of resources and all of that. Um, it's the most common job in, I think, around eight or nine states. Um, you know, when it comes to automation, obviously, you know, what we were talking about kind of painted in a positive picture of people leaving their jobs. Um, but for those people that can't do, you know, that social media kind of influencer type um, entrepreneurial um, you know, uh, direction, if they can't do that um, and their jobs are potentially going to be automated away, um, what kind of solutions do you think or what kind of ideas do you think um, we need to be thinking about to kind of um, counteract that? You know, if companies start automating too many jobs away, you know, what can we do? Um, maybe, you know, is this something that the government needs to step in and maybe um, uh, you know, regulate, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't think, we don't need to think of automation as necessarily a bad thing. So automation has happened throughout history and it, while it might result in replacing some workers with machines, oftentimes it leads to an overall increase in employment because it leads to an overall increase in productivity. So productivity or what you produce at the end of your day is really more important than say labor or just people working. Right. So, you know, I'm reminded of the famous Milton Friedman quote when uh, he was over, I believe, in China and um, he was watching uh, everybody kind of uh, uh, dig this uh, uh, dam with uh, shovels. Right? So they kind of produce a dam and, and they're digging uh, with these shovels. And Milton Friedman told the uh, director that I was like, you know, you should probably really be using bulldozers for this. And then the uh, director said, well, this is a public works program. We're just trying to get, give people jobs. And Milton Friedman's like, oh, I thought you were trying to build a dam. If you're just trying to give people jobs, take away their shovels and give them spoons, right? So again, we don't necessarily want to hate on automation. Um, you know, uh, being able to produce things with a more efficient technology is going to allow for us to have higher living standards than if we, again, resort back to say using axes instead of chainsaws, right? So with that in mind, um, one of the examples I give in my class is that um, there's a machine out there called a feller buncher which is a machine that somebody kind of sits in and it cuts down trees and it strips tree, uh, trees. And it's just a much cheaper and faster way of producing lumber, right? So the person sitting in that machine can do the work of about, I think seven people who are operating chainsaws. So in one hour, they can cut down and strip as many trees as say seven people operating chainsaws. And for that reason, the person who's sitting in that machine makes almost seven times as much as the person who is just operating a chainsaw. Now you want to feel bad for maybe the five or six chainsaw people who didn't get that feller buncher job and now have to uh, work elsewhere. But again, it's not necessarily that their jobs go away because that person is so fast at cutting down trees. That's more trees that need to be shipped to the sawmill. That's more people that you need working at the sawmill in order to produce those final products. 
the labor kind of gets uh, shifted towards uh, different uses when this automation occurs, right? Rather than just gets replaced, right? So again, automation isn't necessarily a bad thing, although temporarily, right? If you're somebody who loses your job to a machine, you don't want to hear that story, right? Like it's bad for you at that time. But again, what happens throughout history is we kind of develop uh, different or better skills, right? That are going to now be more valued in today's context. In the same way that, uh, uh, you know, the tape, uh, the cassette tape replaced the eight track, and then you had the CD replace the cassette tape, right? Now you got digital music that has replaced CDs, right? It's not that um, the music industry has fallen apart as a result of this. It's just created a shift in jobs. If you're somebody who was used to selling eight track tapes and the cassette tape comes out, you either have to adapt to this new environment or you're going to be in trouble, right? And then when the CD comes out and that starts to replace the cassette tape, again, you have to adapt again or find a different uh line of business, right? So that process is actually coined by a uh, Austrian economist by the name of uh, Joseph Schumpeter. Uh, he called it creative destruction, right? It's kind of a Zen-like term in that the creation of new technologies and new ways of doing things kind of replace those older technologies in a positive way as long as it's, uh, this new creation is something that consumers don't choose to do. I think that's really interesting, especially because, you know, usually when automation is discussed about, it's with a negative context. Um, but I think it's um, actually, that it makes a lot of sense that you're saying that markets and people labor adapts to new technology and um, in the long term, you know, in the grand picture, new jobs are created, even though in the moment it might not look like it, um, but it, historically we always adapt. So I think that's a really, really interesting question or a really interesting yeah. thought. Um, and, and I know Zeno has another question too. Uh, I was going to say, but to your point, uh, like you said, if too much happens too fast to where you have a lot of people out of work at once, and uh, there's going to be a transitional period to where they're kind of adjusting to these new jobs and these new skills. And that could be a temporary downturn in the economy, right? So again, in economics, we say there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs, right? So there's kind of, again, this good and bad side to automation, just like anything else. But again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest putting in government regulations to hold back new innovations and creating new machines that could replace workers. Because again, you could put in a government regulation that forces half the people to dig holes and the other half the people to fill them back up. That way everybody wants a job has one. But at the end of the day, you're not really producing anything. And it's the production that matters, not the employment. Very interesting. Also, uh, in those questions, kind of talking about the aspects of the relationship between business and their employees and how that relates to automation. On the other side of the coin, but still related to the business portion of it, um, at the beginning, you kind of mentioned this aspect that uh, businesses are set up to kind of operate in this like nice margin. Um, but when that margin, like when we're in a shortage or when there's certain issues, that margin can be difficult because they don't necessarily have the same plan in place. Um, so my question is essentially um, like what could businesses do to better prepare themselves uh, for things such as supply chain issues or or things that could potentially happen in the future. Yeah, and the uh, quoting former uh, world heavyweight boxing champion, Mike Tyson, right? He said, everybody's got a plan until they get hit, right? Same thing with these businesses. They had, they, you know, they had a plan and then they got hit by this pandemic and now their plan's not working so well, right? But one thing about a pandemic or any emergency is it kind of does uh, test your plan, right? It kind of puts additional stress on it and determines whether or not your plan was a good one or a bad one. So I think one response that you might see by businesses now is to have uh, 
uh, pandemic-related protocols put in place, and again, maybe carry a uh, you know a bigger margin of items, so then maybe not operate quite so leanly uh, or in such a lean fashion, and so that they can uh, maybe accommodate for these shortages a little bit better than they have in the past. So I think you will see businesses adjust a little bit. Right um, now, the rate at which they do so might depend on what industry they're in. Um, I know that kind of healthcare and tech have been hit hardest by these employee shortages, right? So again, it might be a little bit longer for those companies to make some adjustments, but uh, it really, yeah, it just kind of depends on the industry. But I, I do think you're, you're going to see companies adjust in such a way to maybe carry a few more extra items on stock, right? Have uh, you know a few more protocols in place for. Um, replacing shifts or labor as uh, these pandemic-related issues come about. But again, this isn't the first time this has happened, right? Uh, to quote uh, Marcus Aurelius now, I, when uh, uh, Rome was going through a similar kind of pandemic, he said, it's happened before, it's happening now, and it'll happen again. So it's one of the things that, you know, I think you'll, you can expect something like this to happen maybe in another 80 or 100 years time or sometime in the future. That's really, really interesting. Um, and Something you said that really um, kind of uh, sparked a thought in, uh, in me is um, this point on adaptability, right? Like we've talked about this a lot now, um, how markets, labors, even, you know, on a larger scale, societies will adapt to changes, technology, pandemics, you know, uh, I know wars can also have a major, major impact on this. Um, but I wanted to kind of uh, spin that a little bit, you know, what would you say is the biggest, single biggest uh, development um, in the 21st century um, that has shifted and changed um, markets on a global scale. Um, I know that's a very broad question, but um, you know something like maybe the internet. You know, maybe that could be social media, or maybe there's something else. Um, you know, what has really changed things um, in these past twenty years? Yeah, so you know, the internet kind of came around in nineteen ninety. So if you were to ask me, like the last forty or fifty years, I would definitely say the internet. Right, it's probably one of the as uh, probably the thing that has kind of changed the world in terms of how we all operate. Right, so the easier, so the easy answer to that question over the last, you know, 50 to 100 years is definitely the internet, right? That's that's changed the way that we do, we do just about everything. Now, if you want to limit it to say just this century, uh, it's hard to say. I couldn't tell you what maybe the most important development is. Social media, I think, has changed the way that we consume information a lot, and I think that has had some good effects and some bad effects. I think uh, you know the bad effects certainly get uh, touted a lot. Um, I think um, you're now kind of, again, full on into this information age where everything you do or think now can almost be tracked on the internet, right? And I think if you were to tell me this kind of, um, if, uh, if you were to ask me, like, what's been the, one of the biggest changes that businesses have gone through in terms of how they operate over the last 20 years, I would say it's definitely this information tracking, right? To where if I just look up something on uh, on Google, right? All of a sudden I've got 10, advertised for, 10 advertisements for it in my Facebook page, right? So, you know, like when I was buying my, uh, the engagement ring for my wife, right? I was just looking up uh, some engagement rings and, and like how to price diamonds and stuff like that. And all of a sudden I had all kinds of advertisements for everything wedding related on my, uh, on my Facebook page. So I'm, I'm glad that Facebook assumed that she was gonna say yes. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of interesting that, uh, um, you know, again, you do one thing on the internet, it's, it, the internet seems to know exactly, you know, uh, everything you're gonna look at next, right? It seems to know a lot more about you. So yeah, I would argue that maybe the information tracking that's happening now and just uh, information management as, as a field, is probably one of the biggest changes that's happened over the last 20 years. But again, I think that's an answer, that's a question where you could ask 10 different economists and maybe get 10 different answers. 
definitely. Um, it has had a huge effect on, you know, realistically, on all aspects of our societies and the way we live. But um, kind of on that note, I wanted to focus um, on that information aspect. Um, well, I guess first, you know, you kind of already answered this, but, you know, would you say that, you know, right now the most important or one of the most important um, resources or one of the most important um, factors that businesses um, value is information. So, you know, uh, every social media site um, practically tracks, you know, what you're looking at, you know, people are talking about how their phones are listening to them when they're not even on, you know, that kind of phenomenon, you know, it seems like information is most important. You know, stemming from that, do you think that the quality of products has increased because people are more critical of what they're given? So to kind of clarify what I'm asking you, I read this um, study or this report on how um, restaurant food quality has gone up because restaurants that don't serve quality food will get bad reviews on Yelp or you know, other services. Um, and, you know, that would obviously, and that kind of decreases the amount of um, interest, consumer interest they have. So do you think that phenomenon is, um, is it real? Maybe, you know, what's the extent of it? You know, what are your thoughts on the quality of products going up as a result of people being able to connect and talk about, you know, um, you know products or you know, businesses or anything like that? Um, I think you could definitely argue that there's an increase in quality, but I think you could argue maybe even more that there is a greater variety of quality now than maybe ever before, right? I remember uh, sitting back in uh, my uh, uh, economics class in graduate school, and I remember one student kind of talking to the professor about this uh, thing that they bought at, uh, I think it was like Ikea, like as like a dresser or something like that. Right. And uh, they kind of fell apart on them and they're like, you know, they just don't make them like they used to. But my professor pointed out quite correctly, like if you want a well-made dresser, you can get one, but you just have to pay a higher price for it. In other words, they do make them like they used to. They just also make them a lot cheaper now, too, because some people prefer cheaper furniture. Right. They prefer that trade off and lower quality for a lower price. Right. So I think you have uh, a great variety of products now to meet uh, the uh, preferences of a lot of different consumers. Right. So I think you have, uh, you know, um, you have high quality products that are only getting higher in quality as people are willing to pay more for them. I think you also have cheaper versions of the same products that are being made because companies recognize that there's some people that actually prefer a lower quality for that lower price. Uh, there was a. Uh, uh, a paper or kind of a uh, essay written by Dwight Lee uh, that I used to uh, use a lot in my um, uh, classes. I still use them occasionally in my honors classes called Sacrificing Lives for Profits. And this is a paper that has a, a t intentionally a very provocative title, right? And I actually used this paper once at Florida State University in my classes and students, uh, a small student group actually like protested my use of this paper, right? Because it was just so abhorrent, abhorrent to th think of a company sacrificing lives for profits. But if you get past the title and you actually read the paper, it essentially talks about this idea of meeting consumer demand. And it talks about how car companies make cars that are incredibly safe, like some of the safest cars that you can drive, right? They also make some cars that are less safe, right? And they make those cars that are less safe because people might prefer something like a higher speed over increased safety, right? Or maybe they prefer a car to look a certain way over maybe that increased safety, or maybe they just prefer to pay a lower price for a car over that high level of safety, right? And so when it's talking about sacrificing lives for profits, it's saying there might be a few more people who die in an automobile accident because cars aren't producing, or car companies aren't only producing the safest cars, right? They're producing safe cars, 
and they're producing some cars that are really safe and some cars that, while still safe, are less safe because safety isn't the emphasis of that vehicle, right? And so people who drive that, who choose to drive cars that are less safe, right, they kind of are taking the risk to, uh, you know, maybe have a greater chance of dying if they're in an accident. And again, companies are kind of matching that preference by producing those cars that are less safe, and that's how they're sacrificing lives for profit. But we as consumers, right, a lot of times we're better off that they are doing that because if they only produce the highest quality safety cars, the cars that are the safest cars possible, it takes away a lot of choices from us as consumers, including maybe the choice to buy a car if we can't afford all those uh, the safety measures that they're taking. So I asked the protesters to come talk to me in my office about the article, right, like make sure you read it first. And then come talk to me. And chances are, if you're driving a car that is less than the safe, that is less safe than the safest cars out there, you actually agree with the author, right? Or else you would have just waited till you could save up to pay for the safest car, right? You choosing to buy a car that's not the safest car because that's the only car you could afford. That's again a company matching your preferences, right? So again, I think that companies do respond to uh, all these quality reviews and things like that in terms of making their uh, products better. But I think that we've also gotten past the idea of we only need high quality products. Sometimes we're willing to take products of a lower quality and just pay less for them. I'd, I'd go one step further. So right now, my wife and I, we are looking for, uh, we are expecting our fourth child here in mid-February, uh, which means that we really need to upgrade the number of seats available in our cars. So both our cars now can only seat five people. We need a car that now seats six now that we have four children. Right, and we're trying to think of what kind of car to get. Now, obviously, we want a car that's safe, but if we wanted like a brand new car with all the safety features, especially with the supply chains that we were talking about earlier, the supply chain issues we were talking about earlier, again, we'd have to pay $15,000 over sticker price, and we can't afford to pay $55,000 for a $40,000 car. Right, so right now we're looking at cars that are like from the 2010-2011 era, so old used cars, Costing between like seven or eight thousand dollars, right? And um, uh, the reason why we're looking at those cars isn't because they're the safest cars. Again, they don't have as advanced safety features as the newest cars. But honestly, we just can't afford that that newest car right now, right? So again, we might have to pay a little bit less for a car that's still safe, but it's not the safest car possible. And that's just a chance that we might have to take given our situation, or we're just going to have to take two cars or two trips everywhere because we can't fit all of our kids in the cars that we currently have. The UC Riverside School of Public Policy is excited to announce the launch in fall 2022 of its new combined BA and Master of Public Policy program. As the only such program offered exclusively within a public policy school in the entire UC system, the UCR BA MPP will allow public policy students to complete both their public policy major and graduate studies in five years. Learn more at spp.ucr.edu slash ba-mpp for more information. You can also find the link in our show notes. Very interesting, thank you. So to add on, so far we've touched about the supply chain itself. We've talked about kind of how businesses uh, operate within supply chain issues and um, and how they react to them. Uh, but now to add on to the point that you just started to bring up about uh, the consumers themselves, um, what is the role or responsibility or what can consumers do during supply chain issues like this? Like, is it 
important that consumers are still consuming? Is it important for consumers to not start hoarding things that might not be available on shelves? Like a, a what is kind of the, the a good plan of action for the average consumer to operate with um, uh, uh, interrupted supply chains? Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting question, a little bit of an ethical one too, right? So, you know, you as a consumer, you might prefer to hoard toilet paper again at, at the anticipation that there's not going to be enough of it in the future. And, you know, kind of stay away from morality and stick to economics. I can't say that you're wrong. If you're willing to buy a bunch of toilet paper now and pay the price for it, right, then, um, you know, I'd say keep, 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 keep at it, right? You know, do, do what you got to do to feel safe, right? With that being said, though, in terms of um, responsibility, I, I think that a consumer's only responsibility is to make the best decisions that they can for themselves Right. And with that in mind, that means gathering enough information to make a good decision. Uh, and the bigger the decision, usually the more information you're going to gather. Right. So, again, like as a consumer, I might be thinking I'm I'm in a bad situation. I need a new car that seats six people. And right now, cars are just high price. I'm just going to have to take out a big car loan and just deal with the payments. Well, that's not my only option. Again, I can look around at these kind of very older used models and maybe buy a car that for right now, it costs $10,000 and it's got 150,000 miles on it and sell my uh, car that I'm driving now, my Subaru Outback, I can sell it during this time when the market actually has this really high price for used cars, right? So I, like I bought that car for $24,000 back in 2018. I might actually be able to sell it now for $24,000 or $25,000, even though it's got uh, 30,000 miles and four years on it, just because the market for used cars is so high, right? So again, I can sell that used car pay a lot less for a car, uh, for a very old car right now, but just drive it around for maybe two or three years so this market corrects itself. And then once the market is corrected, use that that savings I got from selling that old car and then trade in that, uh, that uh, used car that I just bought two or three years ago. And with that combined, maybe get you know that new car I want for the right price, right? So again, it's up to me to kind of maybe look up some uh, information or make those kinds of decisions. Right. So, yes, the consumer's responsibility is to themselves and make the best decision for themselves and their family. Right. Having said that, you know, again, from an ethical standpoint, yeah, you don't want to go in the store and buy up every single roll of toilet paper and, you know, hopefully leave some for other people. I could certainly um, argue that morally that's, you know, the, the good thing to do. Right. But if people are buying a lot of toilet paper, that does encourage sellers to go out there and produce more toilet paper. Uh, and, They'll do that if, again, grocery stores allow the price of toilet paper to rise. So the uh, thing that you uh, can basically do to prevent hoarding from happening is allow markets to work without uh, those government controls on price. If you do that, then people will stop hoarding toilet paper at $20 a roll, right? They're only going to buy the toilet paper that they need. But if you put like a price ceiling on toilet paper saying you can't sell it for above a certain amount, that's where you're going to see the shelves empty. And that's what happens every time price ceilings are put in place. Right, like when price ceilings put on gasoline in the 1970s, right, you saw long lines at the gas pump and just not enough gas to go around. So price ceilings is one of those things that's going to kind of result in even more shortages in those grocery stores. So, so again, we just allow markets to work. I think people will kind of, again, make the decisions for themselves that will allow there to be enough goods on the shelves in the right quantities. Thus, that tends to be what happens. Very nice. Thank you for that. And then just kind of as a, a quick follow-up to that, 
Um, obviously, I know that uh, none of us are able to predict the future um, or anything along those lines, but is there any form of way to estimate or any form of positive signs um, that we can see or look for to try to indicate the recovery of a supply chain? Um, or is it more of a, a wait and see uh, uh, type of situation? Um, there's always indicators that you can look at, but these indicators are famously wrong. So I guess what I'm, I'm trying to say is that, uh, you know, we have a list of economic indicators that kind of uh, that the Federal Reserve uses to try to predict when like recessions and expansions are coming. Sometimes they get it right. A lot of times they get it wrong. You know, there's a famous uh, joke out there that the Federal Reserve has uh, predicted 13 of the last seven recessions because they did because their economic indicators did tell them when like the last seven recessions were coming, but it also told them when six recessions were coming that didn't happen, right? So again, there are there are economic indicators you can look at, but again, uh, economists are famously wrong at predicting this, right? So people say that economists are just frustrated weathermen. Right, so the you know when they couldn't predict the weather, they tried to predict the economy, and they were equally bad at it. Um, yeah, so I don't I, I don't want to give you an answer as to when you know these supply chains is going to turn around because I'm probably going to be wrong, like most economists are. Uh, I will say that this um, difficulty in predicting things is one reason why policies sometimes don't work out as well as we hoped, and those include monetary policies, right? So again, when the Federal Reserve is trying to anticipate a recession, so they want to increase the amount of stimulus coming in to head off that recession, right, or increase money supply. Um, sometimes by the time they predict that the economy is headed towards that recession, and by the time they decide how much they want to expand money supply and the ways that they want to do it, and then that actually works its way into the economy, the economy might already be kind of headed on that upturn or coming out of the recession on its own. So that expansionary monetary policy hits during these uh, times where the expansions already started to happen. And that's what tends to create uh, uh, that kind of inflation that we might be seeing recently, right? So again, when expansionary monetary policy hits during an expansion, right, you can create this kind of bubble or this bigger boom that you know, leads to these kind of inflationary periods. And conversely, sometimes they might try to do restrictive policy in order to kind of uh, head off that inflation. And they do so during these expansionary times, but by the time they predict that this expansion is happening. And by the time they make these administrative changes and by the time these changes work their way through the system, right again, we might already be headed towards that recession. And so the restrictive policy hits during the recession and it causes an even bigger uh, recession, right? So again, it's the inability to predict coupled with some of these timing lags that causes this policy that we hope would be effective or at least counter, uh, uh, counter cyclical actually turns out to create even bigger uh, swings in the uh, business cycle. Thank you, Dr. Corey. That was really, really interesting to listen to. Um, so as we approach the end of the episode, I wanted to give just a couple of minutes, um, give you a chance to maybe talk about um, maybe some of the classes you're teaching right now, maybe some research you're working on right now, um, just to kind of give you a chance to talk about anything that um, you're uh, working on uh, as of this moment. Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the, so the classes I'm teaching right now is during the winter, I teach the really big intro to microeconomics classes. Right, so that Econ 3 or a class about 550 to 600 students in each class. I teach two sections of that in the winter. Uh, you know, we've been teaching it online here for the first four weeks. We're about to go back to in-person. Uh, my students have had a mixed reaction to that. Uh, a lot of students are not happy about transitioning in the middle of the quarter like this. So I've kind of set up my class in such a way that uh, I told them, look, if, you've been, if you're happy with the way the class has been going the first four weeks, 
I'm going to set it up so that you can continue to complete it online. You never have to go to class if you don't want to. Having said that, uh, I'll still be in class giving lectures during a regular lecture time. If you prefer live in-person instruction, I'll be there, right? But if you prefer to watch these pre-recorded lecture videos like you've been doing, I'll have those available to you as well. Uh, so yeah, I kind of trying to make it as flexible as I can for students. And then during the spring, I'm teaching intro to macro as well as an upper division class called environmental economics. Uh, it's one of my favorite classes to teach. I think it's kind of the best combination of kind of economic theory and interesting uh, kind of uh, um, real world applications. And then in the winter, or sorry, in the fall quarters, I usually teach the environmental economics class again. And uh, I also teach uh, world economic history, as I mentioned before. Uh, I'm de actually developing a new class or, or trying to develop a new class now on practical personal finance. Because so many students come to me and they say, you know, your economics class, it teaches a lot of good economic theory. But I came here thinking that I was going to learn how to invest in the stock market or the difference between a stock and a bond or how I can kind of create wealth and things like that. I tell them, well, that's not really the scope of an economics class. That's more finance. But I know why you're interested in that. And the sooner you learn that stuff, the better because of compound interest. So I'm actually uh, trying to develop kind of intro level econ class that just focuses on that personal finance stuff, right? The difference between stocks and bonds, the difference between an index equity mutual fund versus a managed mutual fund and which one you might want to go with, um, uh, how to invest in the long term, how to budget money, how to prepare your tax returns in such a way that maybe you can save the most on your tax bill, right? Um, yeah, so things like that. Um, and then as far as my research is concerned, uh, my most recent publication efforts have been on kind of new uh, uh, pedagogical activities that I've invented in the classroom, right? So like activities that show the positive uh, or the costs and benefits of say uh, a regulatory environment. So if you have like a lot of regulations versus few regulations, right? What might be the results of that? So I have these kind of interactive activities that I developed for uh, other instructors to use. And so I've been kind of publishing those recently. And then kind of probably the more interesting study that I've been working on recently is I spent some time in Southeast Asia, in particular Thailand and Laos. Uh, and when I was in Laos, I um, was uh, uh, kind of studying the effects of uh, certain uh, microfinance programs on people over there and kind of their living standards. So for those of you who don't know what a microloan is, uh, microloan is essentially if you're living in kind of a poor area, you might not have a lot of access to, say, uh, capital or collateral in order to get a loan, you certainly don't have a credit history, right? So again, imagine some uh, like women living in this remote village, don't really have anything. They can't go to a bank and get a loan, like to start a business, like somebody uh, over here who's got like a house or a car or get a credit history with credit cards, right? Again, they don't have that stuff over there, right? So how do you, how do you give somebody like that a loan? So uh, what a microloan essentially is, is this woman in this uh, village gets together with other women in the village who want to start their company. They form a group of maybe like 10 women. Between 10 women, they might have enough collateral to get like $100 loan, right? And so they go to a microloan finance company or bank and they get this microloan uh, for $100 and it goes to one of the women in that co-op or that cohort. And that woman buys a loom and some fabric with it. And then she uses that to produce scarves or blankets or material that she sells to people visiting the village. Right. And then when she gets enough money, she pays back that hundred dollar loan. Right now, now that entire group that borrowed that money, they now have a credit history, a positive one of repaying that loan. So now the next time they might be able to get two hundred dollars. And again, they give each woman in that or they give the two two of the women left in that uh, co cohort who haven't got any money yet. They give them the hundred dollars each 
And then they go out and start their businesses and then repay back that loan and the credit history of that group grows, right? And so I was looking at this small village in Sopchen, Lao and seeing how these women have created this, uh, all these businesses, whether it be, uh, again, weaving these products or a laundry service for tourists, or again, a, a convenience store that sells everything from like Oreos to bubble gum and things like that, right? And so they created uh, businesses from these loans and again, are able to create uh, higher living standards for themselves. But, and that's not, that's not something that's new. That's something that's kind of been uh, studied for a while. The one thing that's kind of interesting is that while I was there, uh, there's a, uh, a lady there named G and she had actually started three businesses. She started with a weaving business and she created a laundry business and she created this convenience store business and she's operating like all three, right? Well, now she's out earning a lot of the men in the village. And so during the summer there that I was there, she was actually the first woman ever elected to local council or essentially a local office there in that village. And because now women are earning so much money through these micro loans, right, they're kind of viewed more positively by the men in the village as, again, these contributors and are now given more of these leadership roles. So my research, uh, my more present research is kind of focusing on how these micro loans are affecting uh, quality and women's rights in some of these areas, right? Are they, is it improving across the board or is this just kind of an anecdotal example, right? So that's kind of what my more research, uh, recent research is uh, looking at. Thank you for sharing that. That is really, really fascinating. And I think that's a really, really interesting um, topic. I had no um, prior knowledge about uh, microloans and, you know, the, the effects of it and the societal implications. I think that's a really, really interesting um, topic, to topic, topic to talk about. Um, I also want to say, you know, we're um, a little over time now, so thank you so much, Dr. Corey. It, it was an honor to have you on today, um, and I can't wait to share this episode with our audience. Um, it was really, really fascinating to talk about um, supply chains and also the social implications of them, co how COVID has affected them. Um, it was really, really interesting, so it was an honor to have you on, Dr. Corey. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on. I had a, I had a really good time. Hope to do it again in the future. Uh, yeah, but thank you so much. It was an honor to be here. This podcast is a production of the UC Riverside School of Public Policy. Our theme music was produced by C. Codain. I'm Kevin Karami. Till next time.